Welcome to Courageous Conversations, a podcast exploring the intimate side of activism. I'm Gillian Riley. And I'm Jen Warren. And through these interviews, we seek to understand what it really takes to show up and make change during this critical time in history. In an effort to become more effective change makers. Yes. Ultimately, our aim is to promote authentic engagement as a vital component of social justice and social change. Melissa Fourie is the executive director of the Center for Environmental Rights, a position she's held since the CER opened its doors in 2010. The center's mission is to advance environmental rights in South Africa, a country with stark social and economic inequalities. Environmental and human rights are tightly intertwined here around issues like access to clean water and sanitation, freedom from pollution, and social justice campaigns against fracking and corporate waste. In this conversation, Melissa explores how, on the surface, her work protecting South Africa's environment is actually advancing the rights of its people. My name is Melissa Furry, and I am an environmental lawyer. I'm the executive director of the Center for Environmental Rights, an organization of activist lawyers that fight for the rights of communities and other civil society organizations to fight environmental justice. What was it like as a young Afrikaans student in the 80s? What was starting to come into your consciousness? What were you reacting to? Stellenbosch in the 1980s was still very conservative. I mean, it really was the peak of apartheid in many ways, mm. an Afrikaner intellectualism around all of that stuff, and everything was not as it seemed. Mm-hmm. And so you realize maybe this is all not true. And it also led to, I think, all of us moving away from the church. I think, you know, the understanding that all of the stuff was used to oppress and it was just something that none of us could live with. You know, we were very influenced by the American legal system. That was before we had a constitution in South Africa, this was the 80s. So there was a sort of sense of aspiration of this is what we would like things to be like, actually have a constitution and principles and justice system that you could use to enforce it. It Mm. appeals to be now still. And yeah, so it was in that sort of context that I entered university and obviously found myself aligned with the left politics in Stellenbosch. I very soon ended up being the editor of the student newspaper And within that very political context, there were a lot of law students around me. You know, I just like the concept of it. You know, I like having the system. And also, I mean, we fought some big battles, some of it more social, like, you know, it was not integrated. So we didn't have black students on campus. Mm. Can you believe this? So how did that feel for you? Because you still must Mm. have been quite a minority at the university that was kind of more left-leaning or outwards looking. And I suspect that's pretty much still the same, to be honest. (laughs) I couldn't imagine myself anywhere else. Mm. (laughs) There's a theme of my life, you know, picking these battles that are about justice and fairness. Mm. Can you remember then something before that? If you Mm. look back then even prior to those big political battles, having that kind of moral (laughs) compass, if you will. My mom tells a story about how in grade seven, I refused to laugh at the teacher's joke and told him it was racist. (laughs) Obviously caused a bit of a stir. There's always that history of <laughs> protest. Troublemaking. Troublemaking, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I guess prepares yeah. you well for the discomforts that come in doing it now in the big leagues. There must be something within you that's able to deal with all the little things, the looks and the whispers. When you mm. start to take a different position than what everybody else is, I mean, that's very hard for most people. It is hard. I mean, it's still hard. I think we all like to be approved of somehow, mm-hmm. you know. 
We have quite a strong community in the social justice sector in South Africa and there's a lot of support and collaboration and solidarity. You know, We could see that when we had this case recently where an Australian mining company sued two of our attorneys for defamation, we had an outpouring of support from our partner organisations who offered to represent us, to community organisations who we've been working with for a long time, who immediately said, well, what do you need? Do you need us to show up somewhere? Do we need yeah. to protest? It's been a tough experience for us, not because we did anything wrong, on the contrary, mm. but because it has a chilling effect when people attack your ability to speak freely and openly. You know, So if you suddenly realize there could be radical personal consequences, it's not easy for young lawyers to make peace with that. This mm. idea of the backlash, the chilling effect that you can't say what you want to say. I mean, mm. did you experience mm. that? People trying to silence you? <clears throat> Um, you know, I'm cautious. That's also what the legal training does for you. It does mm. make you cautious. We understand consequences and legal consequences and risk. That's what we think about all day long. So mm. I certainly think there are a lot of my social justice colleagues who are far more radical, right. you know, than we are. And sometimes they get frustrated with us for not being more radical. But we tell them that you need to have people on the sidelines. So if you do get arrested, then we can come and get you out of jail. Right. <laughs> Very deliberate, mm. methodical approach to issues and an understanding and an appreciation of the courts and mm. of law as mm. a means of affecting change, which might not be mm. headline making, but it's your tool, it's your mechanism. And that's very interesting because mm. I think now looking at the courts, it's like, is it an efficient way of achieving change? Are the powers so unequal that in fact they can't mm. actually be met in a courtroom? Has it also mm. just become compromised? When it comes to our cases working in the environmental justice sector, it's a mixed bag, but we've had a couple of big successes. Of course, there are lots of different ways in which litigation can be incredibly frustrating and it can take forever and you can have a result in court but a poor result on the ground or you get, particularly with government departments, not complying with the law. You have loads of problems like that. But if it works and it all comes together, it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> so if you want to see accountability in action, I'll describe to you what happened with the community we represented in the Vol. Mm -hmm. They have been living with the pollution caused by ArcelorMittal South Africa, the old Escor, mm -hmm. for the last 30, 40 years. So we won that court case and mm. they were incredibly happy. A precedent setting case, you know, sometimes when it works, it is a thing yeah. of beauty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like justice being served. Absolutely. What was that like for you? It's absolutely terrifying. You feel such a sense of responsibility and it's very unpredictable and very out of your control. So we try to brief the best advocates to argue these cases. Some of the best people in the country who mm. work for free for reduced rates that in itself is a great leveler of the playing field, mm, you know, because right. you think corporates can throw a lot of money at this problem, but we have a lot of goodwill and free services essentially at our disposal. Mm. But it is terrifying nonetheless, you know, you obviously feel really a huge weight on your shoulders. And how do you manage that with these communities to try to help them prepare yeah. for the range of outcomes, yeah. knowing that it might not go their way? I mean, they're actually very matter-of-fact about these things. They understand that things don't always go their way. In fact, that is the story of their lives. Mm. So they're actually remarkably accepting of all of these things, which is exactly why it's so nice to actually deliver right. a success. So, I mean, we try to be incredibly straight and almost err on the side of preparing them for disaster so that they understand. 
that at a personal level is also very hard because you really do want to help everybody, you know, and there are so many worthy causes. Flagrant violation of environmental laws. It's so much low-hanging fruit, you know. Right. You can, I don't know where to start, really. What do you do? Um, How do you choose your battles? So we try to be strategic as we can. I mean, at some point, as a public interest legal organization, you have to choose between whether you're going to be a clinic, so people come to you with their right. problems and you help as many people as you can, or you decide in consultation with all your stakeholders, these are the big issues, let's find the cases that can change the system. Intuitively for us, it feels more effective to do the second option. So for example, as an organization, we've said we need to get rid of all coal mining and coal power plants. It causes incredibly bad health and disease for people living around it. It destroys our water resources, it destroys our soil and our food security and obviously has massive implications for climate change. So it ticks a stack of boxes. Mm. So for us, it's made a lot of sense to focus quite a lot of our organization's energy and time on fighting old coal, new coal, trying to facilitate that just transition to a renewable energy future. So you're trying to be strategic in how you do it. It's not just, as you say, taking on whatever comes. And we're also looking at influences. So at the moment, What's really hard is that our regulators are really, really struggling. There's a lot of political intervention. Look, there's always been an element of that. You must remember an environment we're dealing with a largely a sort of patronage system. So handing out a license is something that's valuable to build your yeah. sphere of influence. And that's a perpetual problem. It's not just in South Africa. That is a global problem. So there's a lot of political interference. There's a lot of money involved. So there's a lot of deception around all of this. There's this sort of great lie that we have an environmental regulatory system that considers (laughs) impacts before things are authorized. Then we make sure we give a good license and we check that people are complying. And then we take enforcement action when we find violations. That is a big fat lie. Mm. So the system breaks down at every single level. And I still believe that if we can present the right evidence to demonstrate the irrationality of the decision-making, we should be able to succeed and get the support of a court to say, you can't actually do this. We are currently busy with a complex and difficult case where they've granted a right for an underground coal mine in a strategic water source area in Pumalanga. It's already declared protected area. It has endangered species. It's the last place you want to make an underground coal mine. It's completely irrational. And so we slowly and meticulously building a case that we can take to court and say actually this decision cannot stand you cannot pretend to have these principles and still authorize this i mean it's the same that we have with coal we have south africa signing up to the paris agreement around climate change and then continuing to authorize new coal fire power stations it's completely irrational you are deluding yourself and you're deluding the public and the international community So I think we have very strong legal ammunition, but we need to get those cases before court. So you're putting your faith in rationality in an age when everything is so irrational right now. You see, the discussion has changed a bit. If you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have probably been more pessimistic. But the reality is that we are now seeing the effects of climate change. So those arguments about environment being an old greenie issue really is starting to erode. (laughs) People can see that is not the case. We're always going to have the situation where wealthy people can buy themselves out of trouble within a very small geographical area, but they cannot do that for everything. And if there's no water in Cape Town, there's no water and no one can live here. And there's no agriculture, there's no economic growth, there's no tourism. Those discussions are changing. There's a lot of awareness. I mean, we are on a path of losing all those charismatic megafauna that Mm. our kids are not going to be able to see them in the wild. Is that really the future we want? 
are you aware of your cultural racial identity when mm -hmm. you do this? Does that come into play for you at all as a Afrikaner? <laughs> I don't it, really think of relevant? myself as an Afrikaner anymore, I must be honest. <laughs> but I am painfully aware of my racial identity, mm. <laughs> probably more so now than 20 years ago. And that's a difficult personal process. As a young lawyer, what spoke to you about mm. environmental causes? Because it was a very different space 20 sure. years ago. Why environmentalism? <laughs> what was relevant about that at the time within the South African context mm. that was so much more about the sure. people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, in some ways, if you care about justice, the environment is an even more important client <laughs> because it's even more voiceless than people. But at the same time, you can't actually have human rights without environmental rights. Some of our most prominent human socioeconomic rights deal with healthcare, education, potable water, housing, all of those things are entirely dependent on good environmental quality. So for me, in some ways, those things are interchangeable. You know, mm -hmm. When you talk about people having access to water and clean drinking water, if you don't look at where the water comes from and what happens to it and how do you get that water in a good quality and quantity to people, what are you doing? You're not going to be able to realize that right anyway. And what's really interesting about environmental justice is the way it requires alternative thinking. To be able to meet any kind of environmental objectives, you have to look at things differently. You cannot just carry on with a straight <laughs> capitalist approach to decision making around finances. It doesn't work. You have to take existing systems and look at it differently if you want to support a more sustainable future. I mean, as a young lawyer in the 90s, was there not pressure on you to go into human rights and to follow that trajectory? Or were you really clear right from the beginning you wanted something that was maybe more interdependent? Did you have a sense of that from early on? Because that wasn't the public narrative around environmentalism. I mean, that was very no, much sure. animals, yeah, you sure. know, an elite set of interests <laughs> that had nothing to do with people in the townships mm. who were just in a process of finding their own, forget Absolutely. about water you know what about my sure. ability to have a job i've spent five or six years in a very corporate environment and that has also been an incredibly useful background for me in terms of understanding that those big role players when it comes to pollution and poor environmental quality are all corporate right, right. they're actually the real people who are causing all the damage and so i've always been very fascinated in how one achieves corporate behavioral change and that's really where, you know, environmental regulation becomes really interesting. Right. So I'm interested in big changes and that can only be achieved through regulatory interventions and getting big chunks of people, money to actually shift behaviors, command and control regulation, things like administrative penalties that we still don't have in South Africa. So we still can't fine companies for violating the law. You know, a lot of corporates like to claim all sorts of credentials and speak about their commitments to sustainable mm. development and climate change and all of these things. But then those same financial institutions will go and finance a coal power station. There's mm. never a dull moment. It's incredibly challenging. Absolutely. You know? I think a lot of times we don't have that clarity mm. of looking for the real points of leverage. The theory of change. Yeah, yeah. to really back up and say, mm. listen, this is where we need Absolutely. to go. And I think that's really interesting from a mm. future of social change perspective. Mm. What do we occupy our time mm. with and our resources mm. with? Mm. Because the public narrative, mm. the stuff we hear, you know, is all about 
putting buckets in your shower and doing this, that, and the mm. other thing, and it creates a stir, but it also distracts us from saying... From the big stuff, the yeah. tiny impact. Uh, exactly. Because I, I think we're at that place with social mm. change where we need to start to look at what can really work. Sure. It's David and Goliath. Sure. <laughs> there are times when you have to gird your loins and put on your shields and walk into stuff that's not pleasant. You know, the work we do is stressful because we're fighting battles that sometimes it feels like you're going nowhere <laughs> and you've tried everything and you're still not making progress. That's hard. It forces us to be incredibly creative and brave and there are still times when you are hitting your head against the wall. That's tough. There's real trauma that comes out of some of the work that we do. One of our attorneys, for example, works on welfare of wildlife, wild animals being kept in captivity and those sort of issues. There's real trauma around threats to some of our partners. One of the activists was assassinated last year, Bazooka Khadebe, yeah. as part of the Amadiva struggle. I mean, that was very shocking for people. Many letters later, many protests later, they haven't arrested anyone. So those are difficult times. I mean, you somewhat casually talk about trauma and assassination within yeah. the same sentence. <laughs> I mean, this is not something the average person sure, sort of deals, deals with. with. Do you right. feel mm. scared these days in a way that mm. maybe you didn't before? Or have you always felt that there was a fairly high risk involved? That event triggered a whole lot of things. And then the lawsuit against our attorneys about a year later it certainly has had an impact on our risk assessment. And as the political situation has been deteriorating, and we're in a very paranoid state in South Africa generally, and mm. we are feeling that very intensely in the NGO sector because there's very vocal threats and criticism of our work. We're obviously picking fights with very big interests in the coal sector, which is, you know, there's a lot of vested interests of the political elite in the coal sector. So we are very mindful of that. Mm. We talk about this probably every day. I would do say, you? absolutely. And do you feel scared? Do I feel scared? <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to assess. It's difficult to assess whether you're being cavalier, brave. <laughs> mm. That's part of the difficulties about this stuff. And the more you talk about it, the more scared people become. So what most activists do is they don't talk about it. So they just put it somewhere in a box. You know, individual activists in their communities, right. they're much more at risk. It's a bit of the wild, wild west out there where mm. we are kind of looking after ourselves. Having said that, one really cool thing about working in the sector is very, very strong international networks. So there's a growing awareness around environmental activists who, by their very nature, are standing up to big corporate interests. And usually those corporate interests are actively supported by government or they are at least allowed to do what they want to do. Does that embolden you to take on different approaches, to, mm. to play that game in a different way? Or does it quite honestly make you say we need to just back off be, do it differently do it differently mm. i mean you don't feel scared enough to say i'm out so no. you're carrying on no. but sure. how do you smartly sure. carry on yeah. in the face of that both personally and professionally sure i mean there are a lot of very good practices and some of it is system some of it is behavioral practices that are widely recognized and recommended throughout these battles across the world so the first step is just to get all of that under our belt you're sitting in the middle of this incredible power struggle and the public's relationship to corporate and government interests. That's the essence of where we are today globally. Mm. 
this recalibration of power, mm. a field that maybe once was considered of marginal relevance is now like right front and center, front and yeah. center in yeah. this global power struggle. Mm. <laughs> Do you feel like you've sort of lived that? That you would one day come to a place where you would be afraid because what you were doing was mm. so important and so relevant that it would cause some people to respond the way that they have. Mm. And no, I didn't expect that. In the last few years, we've seen all the implementation absolutely nosedive. More and more compromised decisions being made, huge drops in budget for compliance and enforcement, huge political interference. It's quite a story, mm. actually. And if you speak to the people who've been in the sector for a long time, they're not in a good space. They're despairing because mm. not only did they have that glimpse of mm. potential or that things could actually be better, but they've then seen the system really give way to corporate manipulation and compromised politicians. And they're still trying to do that now. So the solution for not implementing is to change the law. It's been a process. And look, I also believe in the pendulum. So I do think it will shift again at some point. Sometimes you need a big environmental disaster. Mm. Sorry to say this, but that certainly has changed behavior and legislative priority in many countries. I do think also that climate change is having a huge impact. Corporates, for the first time, realize that they could face big civil claims. It really doesn't make financial sense anymore. So we're sitting with basically just fighting vested interests now. Everything else is in favor of a shift. Right. You're in this weird space facing threats and harassment and feeling this impossible fight against vested interests. Personally, I think that, that is part of the reason for the political shift yeah. is because we're dealing with a massive societal shift. It will change everything. It changes the way we live, mm. the way we spend money, the way we use resources. We're on the cusp of that yes. shift which is exactly why we're seeing much more intense fight back against activists. I think mm. these things are perfectly related. Because they know they're on the they're wrong side of history. They're fighting back. It's the last gasp. It's a bit like that horror movie thing, you know, when you think you've got rid of and they come back again. They don't die easily. <laughs> the car industry is not going to walk away. The fossil fuel industry is not going to just let it go. We really are at the peak in the field of environmental law mm. and doing the most creative work. And that's a very exciting space to be in, you know. It's now in the public discourse, that connection between humans and the planet, which for a long time felt like, let's just carry on doing what we're doing. Yeah. And so you're in this moment, that changing state of affairs, a changing public awareness, but the old villains are holding on. Desperate for people. quite a while. Yeah. I don't know. Look, we're obviously trying to be very strategic. We're trying to be very flexible. It's a very fast-changing environment. So we shift our strategies regularly in response to the changing environment. And we've also built some very useful partnerships. What's different about our kind of campaigning is that it involves using the law. In the past, these battles have really been fought on a campaigning basis, mm. protests, media, advocacy types of campaigns. But to back that up with actual real threat of litigation and successful litigation, which we've demonstrated, it really has changed the game. And we get taken much more seriously than we have ever in the past. You know, we talk about climate justice, which really is about that place where all of this stuff comes together along the inequality divide. On the one hand, we know that poor people cause far less environmental degradation than wealthy people and corporations. On the other hand, environmental degradation exacerbates inequality and limits people's access to natural resources and their ability to develop and flourish you know, we're dealing with an environment that is making people sick. 
That means they can't go to school. They're missing work days. They don't get adequate healthcare on top of that. All of this stuff, it's quite cynical and deliberate. It's insidious, under the radar. People don't know what's making them sick. How is this okay? I find that personally very compelling, you know, and the injustice of that hits you in the face and it feels like somebody should be standing up for those people. That's a daily feature of your life, the hypocrisy, the nefarious under the ground, let's just sacrifice these people for money. To have to confront that, it's nasty. Yeah. It's almost, without you yeah. know, exaggeration, the personification of evil in our world, that you will sacrifice people for profit. Sometimes it's so outrageous that Jesus can't. And so you've got to be inspired by the injustice, inspired to action. And that you find across the social justice sector. I yeah. think we find those people are attracted to that kind of work. And, you know, a small victory can sustain you <laughs> for some time. And ultimately, you have to have the temperament that gets off the couch because you're so upset about the outrageousness. Right, it has to motivate you and not yeah. sort of depress you. Absolutely. But you seem to sort of relish that fight in some ways. I mean, <laughs> despite everything mm. that's lining up against you. It's up and down. I have to be honest, it's not always easy. I mean, there have been a few incidents that really has shaken me personally and it's taken me work to get myself out of that again. You know, we've become so used to all these horror stories. A lot of the time it doesn't touch you anymore because you just like shut yourself off. When it involves children, I find it incredibly difficult to deal with. I mean, the unfairness of when a child that's completely defenseless I mean, what is useful for me, it's context, because in the moment of despair, you realize that we're bad, but other people are also yes. crap. Do you have a sense of a place in history beyond the cases that you're fighting and beyond the environment that there's something bigger at play and your job sits right in the middle of it? <laughs> we're obviously mindful of our place in the NGO sector and the incredibly important role that NGOs are playing now more than ever in defending our institutions. You know, in some ways, the work that we do is incredibly technical, which is absolutely necessary. You have to do that level of work. And from that point of view, to lift your head and look at the bigger picture, you know, when we're fighting that underground coal mine in a strategic water source area, we've chosen to fight it as a straight environmental decision-making battle, when in fact, it's about much bigger issues, of course. It's about a foreign company and being invited by the South African government, apparently with some political connections. You know, we just one relatively small group of people trying to make a difference, trying to change the course of inevitability. And, mm. you know, in the seven years that we've been there, I think we have changed things significantly. I don't think we could ever have pretended that we're going to fix the entire system. But in many instances, we are the only people watching certain things. That is quite stressful. And so if we're not doing it, then no one's doing it. And that's quite terrifying <laughs> often. But we also know that that is incredibly important, mm. kind of moral conscience. We're going to have to regulate this to make sure that burdens borne equally. Right. And it won't be. But we can at least, the worst excesses should be yes. tempered, you know. Yeah. And understanding them as human concerns. Massive. I mean, you, <laughs> you said you're the only thing standing in the course of inevitability. And at times feels like there is an inevitability that if you have power and if you mm -hmm. have the space, you will. Abuse yeah. it yeah. and exploit but it. But it does sometimes feel like you've got your finger in the dark, I'll be honest, standing there holding back this massive flood. That's often how we feel. And mm. that is something that we have to think about and manage. It's overwhelming. Thank you so much. I mean, it's really fascinating insight and for it to be a theater for change. We have to do better. After chatting to Melissa, it's so strange to think of a time when environmental rights were considered an issue for the elite. 
when it was a choice between people and planet, animals and humans. Because Melissa describes so vividly how today environmental rights are where power dynamics between the state, corporate actors, and the public are being played out. Use of public lands, access to clean water, these aren't distant or abstract ideas. They're at the center of urgent conversations about abuses of power and the responsibility of government and corporates to its people. All over the world, we're witnessing environmental issues at the center of discussions around democracy, around people over profit. And we need more people like Melissa standing with our fingers in the dikes. You know, with more people watching and with a public moral conscience, maybe together we can stand in the course of inevitability. Courageous Conversations is supported by the Ford Foundation and produced by Jen Warren, with music courtesy of Benjamin Verdery. Follow us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Search for Courageous Conversations. You can also visit gillianreilly.com slash podcasts for more information or to listen online. And we have a new website. Visit soundpage.fm slash courageous conversations. Thanks for listening.